Welcome to Love That Album 91. This time Eric Reanimator is joined by John Ross of the Feed Myers Facebook page. They deliver a double dose of Mark Langan from the early and mid-90s by chatting about 1992 Sweet Oblivion by The Screaming Trees and then from 1995 Above by Mad Season. A. Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam and Screaming Trees side project, get your best flannel ready, sit back and keep on rockin' views. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Love that album, listeners. This is Eric Reanimator. I am back for yet another month. Uh, Morris has taken three months off. Uh, last month, Tim Merrill and I uh, talked about a couple albums. We talked about Feel the Darkness by, and I'm totally forgetting the name of the band. Don't worry. It's on the website. We, t- we talked about No Means No, and we talked about that band from Portland. At any rate, this month, <laughs> I have with me. Mr. John Ross from the Feed My Ears Facebook page. Hey, guys. And it's been on the show a few times. Yeah. Thank you, John, for coming on. And uh, I think that uh, you're the right guy to talk about these two albums we're going to be talking about. And the albums are, first of all, from 1992, Sweet Oblivion by the Screaming Trees. And then, he said, checking the date. 1995 for Mad Season. Okay, 1995, the self-titled album from the supergroup Mad Season. Alrighty, so I'm gonna we're gonna start off talking. We're just gonna go in order. We're gonna start off talking about Sweet Oblivion by the Screaming Trees. A little background on the Screaming Trees. They were, if you think of grunge as being the four big bands, you think Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. Number five is most definitely the Screaming Trees, or number six, Mudhoney's also up there. As Mudhoney and Screaming Trees are the uh, the big ones that didn't get the play. Yep. So there's a there's a lot of reasons that uh, that people believe that the Screaming Trees did not cross over in the way the other bands did. And it should be noted that both Screaming Trees and Mudhoney were on the single soundtrack, so technically they were both on a major selling album from uh, from that era. The Screaming Trees album apparently came out earlier than the other albums. Released. Let's see if I have a release date here for it. Released in March of 1992, 
Well, I guess that would actually be uh, kind of in the pocket of when Nirvana and Pearl Jam especially were, were blowing up. But they just got lost in the shuffle in a lot of ways. Um, well, there's some reasons for that. Yeah. We can get into that. Well, there, there definitely are. I, you know, I always suspect that there's definitely uh, record label focus going on because they were on Epic Records, which is the same label that Pearl Jam was on. And it's one of those deals where, hey, if Pearl Jam is selling a lot of records, maybe that's where your A&R people are going to be focused. Yeah. Also, there it could be said that the band, uh, well, they had problems yes. with heroin, like is the grunge default, it yes. appears. And I had always heard that one of the reasons they didn't cross over was unfortunately because they weren't very photogenic. Yes, there is, there is that. The brothers are, are large yes. gentlemen. So and, formed in yeah. Ellensburg, Washington, and moved to Seattle. They were, they, as we said, they were part of that original cohort of grunge bands. And actually, I believe they were one of the first to get signed. Their previous album to Sweet Oblivion, uh, Uncle Anesthesia, was very well thought of in the underground community. But that one came out before the grunge bubble had kind of reached mass. Yeah, they weren't really... Until Sweet Ob- they almost developed the grunge sound on the Sweet Ob- Oblivion album. They were almost like a neo-psychedelica yes. before. They, they were of, if you think of Nirvana as being that college rock plus metal plus punk, way plus, more towards plus garage. Punk. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of Soundgarden and Alice in Chains having a little more metal and Pearl yep. Jam having a little more classic rock in them, the Screaming Trees were definitely the band that had a lot more of the psychedelic swirl. And that, Nailed it. That kind of sonic uh, overload in their sound, while at the same time being fairly fairly accessible in a pop way, and having probably the best vocalist of all of the bands in that scene. Damn straight. Uh, and, and the proof to me of that is that Mark Lanigan is a solo artist and as a member of various other projects, has, has best been known for his voice. A yeah, very prolific solo artist. Yes. Uh, he got his shit together big time. Yep. He uh, he apparently was there on the ground looking for Kurt Cobain when Cobain committed suicide, and he may have even been the guy that lent him the shotgun. Ooh. That that was one of the rumors that I recall hearing at the time. So that that was kind of a very big turning point for him. Also, I'm pretty sure that theory's been disproven because didn't uh, Kurt's friend didn't he buy the shotgun? Maybe. Uh, the trip before, for, used a friend's ID or something like that. I, I'm speaking out my ass. Yeah, I, I remember that. I, I am too. I, I just know that he he was apparently involved with looking for Kurt Cobain during those that time period that he was missing. Sure. Oh, and yeah. I, it should be noted that Cobain actually sang on his first solo album. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you go back to his first solo album, they did a cover of "In the Pines," which of course Cobain later did as part of Nirvana Unplugged, and. Novoselic and Cobain both play on that track on the solo oh, album. The Winding Sheet. You know, I've never heard that album. Oh, I've heard every other one since, it's but good. I've never heard his first. 1990. Yes. Wow. I had I didn't even know it existed. Apparently, they were going to do do a kick uh, me off the show, Eric. Okay. <laughs> uh, apparently, they were going to do like a Lead Belly tribute band or album, and that was what that track was recorded for. So oh, awesome! I know what I'm doing when I get off uh, here. It's very much like his, his solo albums that immediately followed it. It's very sparse, very folky, very... Very Americana. Yes, and, and it's interesting that for, uh, for him, that that's the direction he went after leaving the Screaming Trees and 
that's what he's become best known for. Well, other people from that era that are still around have played in bands that were more similar to what they were doing. So Soundgarden's still a metal act. You know, the Alice in Chains guys are still generally doing hard rock metal stuff. You know, Pearl Jam's obviously still going. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, you know, Dave Grohl with Foo Fighters is doing a pop rock thing. But, yeah, yeah. you know, it's not that evolution from rock and roller to Americana artists that, you know, we saw especially with the original rock and rollers of the 50s and then definitely with the punks of the, the late 70s and early 80s. Really, it seems like the obvious direction for Lanigan to go in with that voice, that, that deep baritone. You were talking about a Johnny Cash mm-hmm. song, yes. and in, you can really see that the Johnny Cashisms in uh, Lanigan's solo career. Most definitely, and actually there was a Willie Nelson tribute record that was produced sometime in the mid-90s that, that a lot of these guys played on, and Lanigan actually has a track on it. And Johnny Cash was actually on that record. And the story is that everybody from the scene showed up to see Johnny Cash in the studio doing Time of the Preacher. It's called Twisted Willie. If you haven't heard it, it's definitely worth checking out. Oh, man, he'd do a a great version of Time of the Preacher. And timely, too, with the Preacher TV show. That's how that opened. (laughs) So I'm trying to remember what, what Lanigan did on that record. Let me take a quick look here. Anyway, we should kind of talk a little bit about how that bluesy voice plays into the psychedelic swirl of Sweet Oblivion. So when was it that you first actually heard this record? Well, like a lot of people, I think, my first exposure to them was Nearly Lost You on the single soundtrack. And once I heard that, you know, I was going, I had already had Dirt and uh, the Pearl Jam stuff. and uh, But right after that, I sought out Mud Honey and Screaming Trees. So I went out picked up Sweet Oblivion on cassette (laughs) and I remember the girl I was dating at the time uh, she drove me everywhere and for about a year straight it replaced 10 in her uh, cassette deck in her car. It never left and we listened to it just A to B to A to B on that cassette tape for a year pretty much straight. The rest of our relationship was scored to Sweet Oblivion which is uh, apropos maybe. But, so, I fell in love with that album. It was my favorite of all the grunge nice. albums. So, yeah, that's my origin. Heard the one song, mm-hmm. loved every single song off the album, and uh, listened to it constantly in that little Chevelle she owned <laughs> for a year. So, so for, yeah. for me, and I, I need to correct something I said earlier, this was released in September of 1992. It was recorded in March of 92. So the big grunge explosion of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden was like late 91, early 92. So this came out nine months into the year. For me, I know that I picked up my copy of the album when I was during my last semester at Lake Superior State University, which is it's a very northern tip of Michigan. It's actually on the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to the uh, the one record store in town and, and buying it. I, I, I had to have heard the name somewhere along the way. One of my punk rock friends back in Ann Arbor probably mentioned them. And I would love to say that that is the copy that I still have today. However, long story short, there was a girl and we lived in an apartment together and she didn't have a job. She didn't tell me this. And my copy vanished. So I went and bought a new one at the used CD store. So 
My my suspicion is that she stole it and sold it. Bad times. We don't need to go into the rest of that story. <laughs> Both of our stories evolved exes. That's funny. Oh, I she not she never really was my ex, and that was part of the problem. But um, <laughs> you know, I hate that she's tied to this record because it is a record that I really like. I think that it is more accessible than than maybe it was given credit for at the time. Oh yeah, uh, it's a crying shame. This nice. album didn't skyrocket them. Uh, every song, it's hooky. It's hooky as hell. Yes. Every song sing along almost instantly. It's one of those albums you you know where the lyrics are going. You can almost and that they didn't break through. Like this is the maybe the catchiest grunge album since the post grunge stuff. Like say now these are bad comparisons. The bands are nowhere near mm-hmm. as good. But you look at Bush. Or what was the band I was initially thinking? Like Stone Temple Pilots, yep. like where they took the little, the lyrics became much more hookier, yeah. for lack of a better word. And this album's got it in spades. And it's a leap from their, I remember picking up Uncle Anastasia yeah. and later Buzz Factory, which was their box set, uh, years later, uh, going back. And I like that stuff, but it it's night and day. They, I don't know if they changed to be more commercial, but this is a this could be a commercial album. Yeah. It just never really hit. Yeah, I think there was a couple small hits, but I think that it was better produced and better recorded than their earlier records. I think that their songwriting had evolved. I think that tensions within the band were such that that they were very very creative. And I should note that uh, I'm a huge fan also of the follow up record. Uh, uh, Dust. Dust, which I believe to this day is actually a requiem for the whole grunge scene. But, yeah, I like Dust a lot, too. It took five years to get yes. it, though. Let's talk about some of these tracks. Shadow of the Season, which I, I think is just a great starting track. I think it also has a drive and a tempo to it, but it doesn't blur into one large song. You could, That drumming. Is it yeah. Barrett Martin at this point? Because I know there's a crossover between... I believe that's Martin Drummond on this track. Yes, I, I believe. And his drumming is well. It's all it's it's his. It's really bouncy compared to a lot of grunge stuff. A lot of toms and stuff. And uh, I find almost you can beatbox the beat to Shadow of a Season. Yes. Weirdly enough, which doesn't seem to fit in the grunge thing, but I love it. His drumming really stands out to me. Yeah, and, and it's a shame because I'm actually a big fan of Mark Pickrell, their original drummer. Yeah. I really like his solo stuff, but yeah, Barrett Martin coming on board and uh, drumming, just just I think they, they kicked the band up to another level, and I think that uh, part of that is production. Part of that is with Pickerel out of the band, and I, I'm if I'm understanding it correctly, he was kind of maybe the peacemaker between the various uh, parties, and actually went on and played with them in various other bands. Plays to this day. But I, I think that having him not there to try and make peace probably probably caused a little more of the tension that that kind of worked in their favor. Now, do we know the te- what was causing the tension? Was it I think, Lanigan's heroin use? That was probably or? there as well. But it was I think it was probably also the brothers that that brother tension. You you can't you can't overlook that really. I mean that that's there, especially when it comes to a band. Especially comes to a band that's kind of their band. Yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, Shadow of Season, catchy, it's got that uh, real light, bouncy drumming, Lanigan's voice, I've heard it described, I believe, by Isabel Campbell, is that her name? Yes. As 
worn like a leather saddle. And, I mean, it gets even deeper as his solo career progresses. But if people think of grunge as and the grunge offshoots as Eddie Vedder copies, it should be said that Lanigan's got a voice deeper than Eddie Vedder and more enunciated. He's a better singer. I'm a big Eddie Vedder fan, yeah. don't get me wrong. But Lanigan's got a next-level vocal tool going there, I think, especially on this album. And the production, like you said, it's really crisp of the time, very 90s production, and it really suits hearing the individual instruments and his voice and the parts, except for the bass. Mm-hmm. This album's really lacking in bass, I find. Oh, a lot of, a lot which, of albums from that time are. Are, which is, which is nice in the follow-up. Uh, the Mad Season album yeah. we're going to be talking about really bucks that trend, which is nice. Yeah, it's a holdover from those uh, those 80s, 90s thrash albums. No bass, <laughs> that metal production where they really kicked the bass. I don't know why. They, bass was awful in these albums between 1985 and, say, 98, 99, until almost new metal brought it back into vogue, which is awful to say that they were good for something, but at least they brought bass back. Well, the, the bass line is, is just that, the bass line, and if you bury it, you're, you're missing the part of the hook that the listener can, can grab onto. Which just might be my only complaint about the production of this album is the bass gets lost, I find. So, the next song, number, track two is the, quote, hit, Nearly Lost You, which was on the single soundtrack. And that's definitely the, the radio single. That's definitely the one they should have picked. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's got that hook, and it's got that catchy catchy refrain, and it shows off Lanigan's voice. It had a shitty video, but and we got to remember that this was an era where videos still mattered. Yes, and again, part of the problem with this band might be that the brothers were three hundred plus pounds each, and they weren't as photogenic as the rest of the yeah, grunge definitely. scene, which was pretty much a pretty, pretty group of gentlemen. Well, if you think <laughs> about the bands that didn't make it, aside from Mud Honey. You're talking Tad, which had a 300-pound bass player. Yep. You're, you're talking you Screaming go. Trees. You're talking the Melvins, who are very unconventional looking. <laughs> but they look at, they better and better the more they age. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean... It, like, better isn't weird. It's inside Joe Bobby. <laughs> so I, I definitely think that was a factor. I, I'm also pretty sure that the record industry types that were involved in the scene were trying to keep efforts focused on... Let's make a pile of money off of these four bands while they're still around. And you know, of yeah. those bands, I, you know, I, I guess that what Nirvana and Alice in Chains are the only ones that are, are actually actually missing members at this point. Uh, unless you want to talk yeah. about Mother Love Bone, which a fa- favorite well, yeah. of mine, but they're that, kind of a they're kind of a a, a band that spans the gap that gap between hair metal and grunge. Yeah, I would always classify them a bit more on uh, hair metal. They're more the progenitors of malfunction and stuff like that. Man, it never really took off that scene. But yeah, I agree. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, I love Mother Love Bone. They're one of my favorites. But they're they're definitely they're definitely that bridge. They're definitely not in in the full grunge. Again, the song on uh, the on singles. Uh, Chloe Dancer slash Crown of Thorns was probably their grungiest track. Probably. And, you know, the one they're known for these days. Which is uh, too bad, because their album was actually really good, and so was the EP they put out. 
definitely worth going back to yeah. check out if you like the that kind of glammy hard rock stuff that that was it Apple? Yeah. Is that the name of the Yeah. 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 And then the EP was called I think that's around this time too. Yeah. That's right. Good album. Yeah. Dog Star Superman? No, no what? I'm trying to think of other songs Star off, Dog Champion. San Francisco Where the flowers bloom in spring I said I'm afraid to winter And see what disease brings All this deal With his eyes what you shine and see I said he's out of shadow God don't let that be me Suck up Star Dog Champion, that's right. Yeah, okay, I always go back to Chloe. That's probably the only song I really listen to by him anymore. I wasn't a huge in the Mother Love Bone, but but still, I always appreciate it. There's those. some really great punky stuff on that EP, like uh, Mind Shaker Meltdown, and uh, I, there's stuff on, on the, the, on the uh, album Apple, like Captain High Top and um, Gentle Groove that I, I think are kind of overlooked little little gems. So I mean, I'm a huge fan. I've got the I've got the cassette tape or the the VHS tape of the Mother Love Bone Earth Affair, which was this little mini quasi documentary thing that came out. I've got I've got both EPs. I've got the Malfunction documentary set that's got the Malfunction demos. So uh, actually, it was on an episode of the Dig Me Out podcast where we talked all about that. So right on. Have you seen the Pearl Jam documentary? P20? Yeah, and that, in fact, some of the stuff in that is from the the Mother Love Bone documentaries. Oh, there They're you go. Malfunction documentaries. The Andrew Wood ones really is what what they are. Okay, so the next track is Dollar Bill. track to me because this is almost like a bluesy grunge track yeah and it should say also it charted as well as nearly lost you this was the two singles released that did anything yes i actually i think i remember seeing the video for it and the video is what kind of gave me the idea that oh this is more like a a bluesy murder ballad rather than a i don't know whatever whatever the grunge songs were about of that era this isn't about homelessness or you know suicide it's about or heroin. That's true. Or heroin. <laughs> or Vietnam, for that matter. Uh, heroin, what was I thinking this week? Heroin was to grunge music as televangelists were to thrash metal. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's interesting because we, we see this cycle with, with heroin in the music scene where you get into a point 
in our culture, the American culture, the North American culture, where you have a downturn and you have young people who are making music oftentimes about what's wrong. And you see heroin come in. You saw it in the early seven to mid 70s. You saw it in the early to mid 90s. And we're seeing it again in the, in the last couple of years. But it always leads from it leads oh, heroin. Yeah. It kills them off, but it leads to such a spike of creativity and a little bubble of amazing music almost every See, time. I, I don't want to come off as pro heroin, but <laughs> well, it's it yeah, like I'm I, I pro heroin. To, yeah, it leads to some really good music. I, I tend to think that what happens is you have damaged people who have whatever going on in their lives that pushes them outside of the mainstream minority and majority populations so that they can see better what's going on. Because get out of a long line, you can see what's going on at the head and you can see what's going on at the back. And it makes you better able to to be able to kind of report on that and talk about the issues that are being talked about, whether it's child abuse or drug abuse or the economy or homelessness or disaffected youth or whatever it is but at the same time you're you're out of line and you're you're lonely out there and you're seeing all this awful stuff so i think that that with especially people whose personalities are damaged and that's what pushes them out of the, the culture that to cope with it there's a certain segment of that population that they create art but they also need to numb themselves or they need to medicate themselves or they need to damage themselves and i think that's where drugs like heroin come yeah that's my long-winded thing about about heroin. Which, by the way, heroin hates you. Don't. Yeah. The other thing is, I don't. I don't believe that uh, the heroin causes creativity. I believe that that all kind of uh, narcotics and drink can lower your inhibitions so that you're more likely to expose your art to the world and and not yeah. be as self self critical as uh, people who aren't experimenting and ha- don't have their barriers lowered. And I think that's something. Well. I'm not a hundred percent in agreement with you, because um, you think of uh, the acid use, for example, in the '60s, and what that led to. I mean, lowering inhibitions is one thing, and it's true that the drugs would do that. But it also, you know, acid or LSD, the psychedelics, mm-hmm. really led to psychedelic experimentation as opposed to heroin, which really, I don't know, led to more noodling and yeah. stuff. And there seems to be a direct cause and effect between different – maybe weed might be the most benign that will open the, the inhibitions mm-hmm. and open the gates to all kinds of stuff. So stick with weed, people. But I, I think certain drugs definitely affected artists in certain ways. I mean, if Jimi Hendrix was, wasn't dropping all those tabs of acid, I don't think we would have got all the stuff we got from I, it. I, I would say I that you're right with psychedelics that because of the way it affects people's perceptions, they start to see and perceive things differently. But – my understanding of heroin is it's, it basically just numbs you and gives you an, an euphoric, yeah. euphoric uh, feeling. I don't know. I, I'll be honest with you. I've never done any drugs. I'm a drinker, and that's it. So, and that's been fine with me because I'm. I've never done any heroin. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, I was around a music scene that had had uh, had some heroin casualties, and, and that was just not pretty. Oh yeah. Well. So yeah. Yeah, stay away from the needles. Yeah. Keep, keep it So nasty. Morris is sitting there going, why are you guys talking about It always happens when That's I'm on fine. here. That is totally okay. <laughs> it's maybe a tread I should leave out of my conversation. All right, so so we go we go on through the album, and we get a couple more songs, more or less, which is it's kind of a quasi-ballad, but not really. It doesn't really get into that, that rootsy ballad thing, but it definitely has that slower tempo to it. Probably my least favorite okay. song on this album, I should say. 
this the most grungy, maybe, because yeah. like, they sing about rivers in it. <laughs> Every grunge band had some rivers. Well, I, I love the uh, the image of the galactic river. There's just something about that that's always yeah. spoke to me. That it's very soundtrack of our lives or Hawkwind-ish. Oh, I didn't think about that. I'll have to re-listen to it with that a year. It's not a bad song at all. I can see where you're saying it's your least favorite, but it's not a bad. It's not like no, a stupid. No, no, not a bad song at all. I like every song on this album. It's just my least favorite. Hawkwind's a good comparison to earlier Screaming yeah. Trees, now that you brought that up, that I never quite made that connection. Very Hawkwindish, actually. But I mean, not as drawn yeah. out, a bit more straight up rock, but uh, yeah. The guitar, definitely. Gary Lee Connors guitar lines, which are uh, a lot less riffy than a lot of bands, a lot more noodles, noodling around on them. The riffs are a bit more creative, I find. Now, have you gone and listened to any of his post-Screaming Tree stuff? I have not. All right. I'm trying to remember if, which band he's in. I think it's Vallis that he's in, which is pretty good uh, kind of stoner rock. One oh, of yeah? his brothers was in Vallis, or is in Vallis. That makes sense. A stoner rock band totally fit his style. I have one of their albums that I've listened to. I couldn't pick a song out from it, but I mean, it's it's not something that I put in and then immediately eject. I mean, it's it's definitely worth listening to and checking out. So, well, stoner rock's a genre that tends to blend yeah. a lot. It tends to sound a lot Zeppelin-y. It's some really good stuff. I mean, I love Graveyard. Have you heard Graveyard? I have. I need, I need to spend a little more time with them. They're great. So, yeah, but I, I definitely like that sound in a certain way. I've always always associated it with Sabbath and the whole Planet Caravan. Sure. Yeah. Sabbath and Zeppelin. I see. I got a lot of Sabbath from a lot of grunge. Yeah. But uh, the Zeppelin is really, to me where that stoner rock sound comes in should be said speaking of stoner rock mark lanigan from a lot of the 2000s sang a lot of did a lot of stuff with queens of the stone age who are that from the desert palm yeah. palm desert scene and you know caius yep. and all that were you know the kings of stone yeah, I, I, I was i was a caius fan for a while there i i think uh some of their albums don't hold together as well as i i thought they did but but, yeah, but they had a couple really good ones they have some really great ones but uh yeah um the singer i forget his name he doesn't actually always hold yeah. up that great but yeah and and it should be noted that what's his face josh hum Hummy was actually with the screaming trees at the very end of their their run there he uh he toured with them on i think their last tour so 
he was he was in the mix there. Oh, Andy Wallace mixed this album. I'm not familiar with that. That makes he was a thrash guy. If that makes sense with the bass, okay. the lack there of bass. Yeah, Slayer, Raiden Blood. Oh, part no, he was an engineer because Rick Rubin was the producer. But yeah, Sepultura, Rise, Cult. Uh, yeah, New Model Army. Yeah, yeah. Never mind. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, that explains the lack of bass. Because interesting. Like I, yeah, none of those that thrash you see, you know, Metallica is famous for their lack of bass. This is his credits from 1992. Yeah, Rollins Band, End of Silence, L7, Bricks Are Heavy, White Zombie, La Sexto, Sonic Youth, Dirty, Helmet, Meantime, Rage Against the Machine, self-titled, Ned's Atomic Dis- Dustbin, Nirvana, Hormoning. This is 1993. The Galactic Cowboys, Space in Your Face, which is a band that I'm a big fan of, and that are. This is going to be another digression. The Galactic Cowboys were signed to Geffen. Their album was recorded, I believe, in 1990 and released in 1991. They were going to be the next big band that Geffen was going to push after they were done with Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 because Geffen thought one of those guys was going to drop dead. And so they wanted to get as much money out of the Guns N' Roses thing as they could. And the Galactic Cowboys got put off and they got put off and they got put off. And then... Nirvana and everything changes and the Galactic Cowboys their bass player is kind of bitter to this day which is too bad because he was an amazing songwriter so if you've never heard them imagine Anthrax or Pantera or one of those really heavy thrash bands metal bands but with the Beatles singing for them so three-part harmony just that kind of sound their their career effectively got sunk by Nirvana and they did Two albums in Geffen, and then they got dropped, and then they got picked up by Metal Blade because the head of Metal Blade was a big fan. And they did a couple of, of albums on Metal Blade. Their first one in Metal Blade is really good, but after that, it's kind of diminishing returns. At my point, oh, this guy also, he went on to do more Rage Against the Machine, Silver Chair, The Misfits, American yeah. Psycho. Yeah, he didn't produce all these. Yes. He mixed and engineered yep. a bunch of them. But the mixing, yeah, the bass, he had something against bass. <laughs> well, you know, I really do think that part of it was the, the era. I mean, that definitely you, you buried the bass in, in that era. All right, what else we got on this record? All right, so then we get to uh, Celebrations of the Past, which is one of my favorite songs. This one's a little yeah. more reflective, a, a little this, – this is another step down in tempo. This is definitely more of a – not a ballad quite, but kind of getting towards there. This is for footsteps approaching the night. They keep themselves moving. Do what is right Now watch what you gather And hold in your hand The numbers are many Misunderstand Drink your wine away instead I will remember all that's said A great track Trying to think what I got to say about it. I just love Lanigan's yeah. vocals. I can always default to that. Go on, I guess Secret Kind, the next song. Unless you got something more to say about Celebration's Past. Unfortunately, uh, Secret Kind is one that I, I don't really have anything to say about because it doesn't really stick with me. Oh, I love that song. Uh, I think it's one of the catchiest songs on the album. Really short. Mm-hmm. It's just a tight, short rock song. Really catchy and really singable. Okay. I will have to go back and, and so, listen to that one specifically. It always it always stuck with me. I think it was the second song on side B. Okay. I'd always get excited when it was coming up on that old flipping the yep. cassette. It should be said that I, I'm not even sure if this came out in vinyl at the time or not. Oh, I don't know. A, it, a 
vinyl was well, this was vinyl was in its death knells at this point. Yes, but at the same time, a lot of these bands had been signed a couple of years earlier, where vinyl was was part of the the contracts. And I, I feel like there was probably a lot of vinyl that got pressed for contractual reasons only, and then got dumped on the the aftermarket very quickly. Well, I remember specifically seeing um, going into a you know record store at this point, like a used slash new record store, and seeing vinyl singles by Nirvana and Pearl mm-hmm. Jam, and and I was like. Wow, they're being retro. Who buys records? Like it was really weird that these, but there was almost like they were bringing it, trying to bring it back already. Well, I, I, I do Which know that makes... both of those bands, when In Utero came out and when Versus came out, that they issued the vinyl LPs a week before the CDs hit stores. And I know this because I bought the In Utero for my brother. And I bought the uh, verses for myself, which I no longer have. Yeah, whatever. They wanted to have the vinyl out. Those those bands did, and that's that's why it was there. Well, it doesn't surprise me. You could just imagine Kurt going through boxes of records, you know, looking for that old raincoat single or something. It just fits. Yeah, with and the Pearl Jam the, guys, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going through secondhand shops and you know buying some flannel and buying some old. Neil Young singles. <laughs> you can totally see Ben Most doing definitely. that. Most definitely. And uh, Jeff Ama, especially as well. He seems yeah. like that kind of a, a guy. All right, yeah. so next we get to the Winter Song, Winter Song, which is actually one of my favorite songs on this album. <laughs> This is uh, yeah. this is where we get more towards the, the slower. Once again, the, the more mournful. The, this is where we start seeing some of what Lanigan would become known for later on. And yeah, actually, yeah. I believe there was a single that came out that had an acoustic version of this because I have an acoustic version of this somewhere that's actually quite good. That oh. they kind of recast it, not quite as a folk song, but just more like an acoustic rock song, but not like a soft rock song. More towards that area that unplugged would. And, and how ba- how much of a shame is it that these guys didn't get to do an unplugged? Yeah, his voice would really sound amazing. Yeah, and the guitar. Yeah, the guitar lines too. Again, they're not. None of the guitar is very riffy with this stuff, so it'd be really sound really good on an acoustic. You know, lots of plucking. So going I think on. of the major grunge bands, the only ones that didn't do it uh, unplugged were maybe Soundgarden. Did they do one? I, I, don't, I don't believe think so. so. I know, of course, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains did. So then it would. Even a whole bit one that I don't know if it was ever properly released, but uh, I'm a uh, I'm a big hole apologist, and I really like that unplugged album. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do a cover of "Hungry Like the Wolf." That's great. Hole does Hole's one of the best live cover acts. I mean, they're up there with Typo Negative. Hunting down some of their live mm. covers are great. Paradise City, lots. I was I was <laughs> I never really into the Hole. The... There was something. To... About them. Most people I, had are. A, I had a really hard time with <laughs> something about them. Courtney Love. No, it, it was the music. It was it was more musical. There, I I'm a big fan of uh, 70s punk with female female vocalists. Bands like the Nuns and the As Avengers, I, and I especially love Legal Weapon. 
So it really yeah. went when everyone's going on and on about Hole and L7 and uh, Babes in Toyland and the Riot Girls, you know, I'm sitting there going, 45 Grave was singing about this with a female vocalist. Legal Weapon was singing yeah, about these same issues and doing it in a way that I found much more accessible. And maybe I know that it's not for me to to be accessing that. But there was something about this, this arrogance of these especially you know okay i'm just gonna say it the riot girls like really angered me really pissed me off there was this kind of we're we get to make the rules and we get to be in charge and you are useless and we can dismiss you and we're gonna go around saying that we're the first ones to really sing about you know rape and abortion and incest and abuse and all of that stuff and i'm going I have Legal Weapons Death of Innocence album from 19... Well, what about Kathleen Hanna stuff? I mean, do you feel the same way? Yeah, about... I never got into her stuff. There was just... Bikini Kill or... Oh, man. I, I, this Riot Girl's sweet. Sweet. It should be said, a lot of people would uh, would take issue with calling whole I understand. Uh, Riot Girl. But they really took, you know, that and took the, you know, added pop to it and... Uh, you know, maybe lighten the message a bit, but man, I love that's, that stuff. That's fine. It's it just, my sweet. And, and part of it was where I was coming from. Part of it was growing up in a town that preached third wave feminism is fact, and that's the all men are evil thing. I had to sit through that shit in high school. You know, I, I had to sit in a oh, high school oh. class where they were telling us all men are rapists. I mean, straight faced. And it was like, you know, as as a as a teenager who's definitely not at all confident about about his social standing or his, you know, attractiveness to the to women around him. And then just it was just another thing that was like, oh, you're scum. So that that whole thing left a bad taste in my mouth. And then as the Riot Girl thing kind of evolved and there was this this really like privileged white girl club mentality to it that just turned me off. Right. I I guess you, your reasons are valid. I, I mean, I, just, I completely uh... understand where where other people are coming from with their uh, their point of view that that's just it just happened that where I grew up and the way I grew up was it just completely clashed I'm just a sucker for a strong female front front woman I guess uh, as anyone who's part of uh, yeah. my ears knows uh, yeah it's, I'm just a sucker for it from all regions and all genres that's why right girl brought so much of it to the forefront in the 90s in general so much uh, so so much great female musicians i don't want to call them woman rockers yeah. or nothing nico case would kill me but uh musicians of uh it brought a, i i like that the feminist issues came up it just led to more powerful yeah. i mean we wouldn't have got liz fair and all the, the non-riot girls stuff the non-sarah mclaughlin lilith fair the, the middle spot i, I love so that I, I i love you know i i love the pleasure seekers and Susie Quattro and the Runaways and all of these, these punk bands oh, yeah. with women that I mentioned. And then stuff in the 90s, like I was a fan of Drain STH, where this metal band was. <laughs> yeah. There's a band called Die Cheerleader that I like. There was a band. No one talks about Drain. Let's talk about Drain oh, God, for a minute, man. Uh, oh. Was... oh, I remember everything. She, the lead, the lead, uh, what was her name? She was married oh, to really? Tony Iommi. Nice. Yeah, when they released uh, their second album, uh, Freaks of Nature, uh, that was produced by Iomi, I believe. 
but it, the Sabbath influence really comes through. I love them. We call, I called them the female Alice in Chains when they first came out. Maybe that might be a bit derivative. Should be said they weren't the. They were just, they were just catchy. I love them. Uh, they don't hold up the best, but <laughs> I, no one ever talks about Dre Sth. I guess they were just known as Drain. Yeah, in because Europe. there was a, there was another there band was in the a, states called Drain, I believe. Yeah, it's one of those. Bush was named yes. Bush X here for a long time because of that same issue. But did you oh ever man, hear a Swedish band called I Misdemeanor? Playing that same kind of Sabbathy heavy rock in the same era, maybe a little bit later. They were part of that whole helicopters high energy scene. Yeah, oh, they're yeah, def- yeah definitely yeah. worth worth tracking down. And then uh, there was another band that was actually kind of one of the last gaps gasps of hair metal called Phantom Blue. Phantom Blue. Did you ever hear them? Oh, I've heard Phantom. Blue. They they yeah. they were part of that hair metal thing, but their album was definitely more. Hard rock. They were no, no vixen. No. I mean, <laughs> in a good way. Another band that I think gets a really, really raw deal, and I think their album's a lot better than people remember it, is. Very poppy psychedelic well, stuff. I, the proof's in the pudding, oh, yeah, right? Um, what's what's her name went on to write? You know, well, lots yeah. of pop stuff. You know, Christy Aguilera and Pink and all that. What is her oh, name? Oh, it's uh, Linda. 
I am thinking of the yeah. great girl, right? She went on to be a big yeah. writer oh, yeah. in the Linda Perry. 2000. Linda Perry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there you go. She can obviously write a song. I agree. I like but what's going on was just one of yeah, those yeah. ubiquitous songs that turned people off. I always like that, that album is definitely if you see it in the discount bin, just just grab it, take it home, listen to it. You can skip what's going on, but you know, let's listen, listen to <laughs> That was a ubiquitous bargain bin thing in the nineties too. That album, every pawn shop had six copies. It was up there with the Spin <laughs> Doctors. For everyone had that album, and everyone yes, got rid indeed. of it. Oh yeah, and that didn't she wear that? Didn't Linda Perry wear that funky? Yeah, like that proto steampunk look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. hanging out with Rob Zombie any any moment now. <laughs> yeah, or she idolized the Concrete Blonde. Oh, uh, Jeanette Napolitano, <laughs> who was another. Another yeah. very strong female uh, front person that oh, yeah. records I actually I really loved. It was just so all oh, of yeah. this stuff, you know. I, there was just something about that like whole not holes as, as much, but like that whole quote riot girl scene that just I should have been <laughs> totally in, but it just rubbed me the wrong way. Everyone hates hole. You know, take it from me. Anytime I ever post that I've listened or uh, anything comes up with Courtney Love and Feed My Ears, I just get it from every direction. Maybe two defenders and everyone else just hates them. But like I said, I'm a sucker for a strong presence of a front woman, and Courtney had that. So I, I will give hold this, that there is a generation of young women that saw and heard Hole and that told them that they could do music, that they could talk about things that that normally they wouldn't talk about. I was just talking about, you know, the Avengers and Legal Weapon. Not enough people heard those records. Not enough people know those records to be able to say, oh, this is saying it's okay for me to talk about abuse or whatever these issues are to me. Unfortunately, people didn't hear those records, but they heard whole. That's what it's all about, right? Uh, The influences, you know, they don't sell. And and they go on to inspire the later generations who soften the message or polish it up and become And maybe if kids. they heard whole and they did a little bit of research, they would start picking up stuff like Seven Year Bitch or The Gits Splits or something. Or, the you know, um, yeah, any number, you know, even Sc- Sky Cries Mary. I mean, any of those other bands that, that women were doing interesting things in, you know, The Breeders. I mean, Tanya Donnelly, the whole, the list goes on. So oh, yeah. back to <laughs> the screaming. Yeah, yeah, that was a digression. So then we... Sorry, bring up. Right. We get towards we get trouble times, and uh, no one knows. And then the final track, which is actually one of my favorites, and I think should have been one of the singles, "Julie Paradise." Uh, did we skip? Butterfly? We might have because "Butterfly" I thought would, had had top ten oh, definitely. for it. Just that chorus is so catchy, but yeah. I 
bit sugar sweet I need some with you Says I want to run my mind Sounds all wrong inside I'm thinking Paradise This vocals on Julie Paradise. I mean, this is the vocals mm-hmm. and everything, but the way he sings the refrain, the refrain of Paradise is uh, it's a great closer, and it's just, oh, man, his deep baritone hitting those higher notes singing. Yeah, and, and it's got it. this ringing kind of poppy accessibility to it. Which is all yeah, over this album. It's, a, it's really... Uh, um, Amazing that this, at the time this came out that it wasn't. I mean, this should have been as big as Black Hole Sun or something, you know? Like, fuck. yeah, most most definitely. I mean, there there is there is enough on here that was sellable in the marketplace, and I really don't like talking about it in those terms because that's not what it should be about. But but reaching no. an audience and being you know radio friendly, but not not trying to to ride anybody's coattails because they were still doing the same kind of music that they had been doing. Well, a bit. Again, I th- I find this album a bit more commercial than their than say well, a well, I mean, it, as far as they didn't like drop the psychedelia and they didn't they didn't try to simplify. I don't feel like they tried to simplify the music. I think they toned it Maybe. down a bit. Like, there's not a song over uh, five minutes. Oh, the, the, Julie Paradise is uh, is five oh five. That's the longest track on this album. So they tightened it up and made it a bit more palatable, I guess. To the radio for this album. I don't think there's anything wrong yeah. with that. Uh, and whether it was an intentional thing or not, but but I'm not all for top 40 and selling records is not oh, yeah. everything. Again, you could be an influence later on, but I also like to see my uh, favorite artists do well and make some money, and this album should have made them more. I'm sure it made them, like, obviously they probably got more money from this album than all their other stuff combined. I think it did but, well. I think that it did well enough that, you know, however long it took for the next album to come to come out, it actually came out. So Yeah, maybe killed a lot of the momentum. I think so. But still, this you could talk to people about uh, Nirvana, um, Soundgarden, mm-hmm. the big four, and everyone knew who they were. Not many people knew who. I mean, in my experience, I actually made tight musical friends with a person over him wearing a dust <laughs> T-shirt because I was like, no one talks about Screaming Trees. He's like, I love them, and then you know, twenty-five years later, you know, we still talk music because Screaming Trees. Because I really, I was the only person I knew who listened to them outside of stuff on the same uh, yeah I, I had a few friends that were into them uh they weren't one of the main bands that got played but I, I you know in the last i will say in the last couple of years if not the last decade of all of those those grunge bands screaming trees are the ones i come back to the most often i think they hold yeah, up the best well uh, i could put an argument up for uh verses by pearl jam being uh an album that's aged well but i think this album's aged really i also think well. it's a, an album that people can discover and rediscover and not feel like not feel For like sure. they've heard this however many times, or heard the singles however many times. You know, they know that maybe that one song that's going to come from the single soundtrack, or for having actually seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a great album. Now lyrically, you know, it's funny. I don't. I've never analyzed their lyrics too much. 
I uh, again, like I said, I just blindly almost sing mm-hmm. the choruses and sing with along with Lanigan. But I'm a big lyrics guy, and if I really love an album and a band, I usually yeah. dig into the lyrics, and usually that's something that carries me my love for the album even deeper. One of the reasons I love Nico Case so much because her her lyrics are amazing. This is an album that that never happened. It's almost like a pop album to me, but deeper. But lyrically, I don't even care what this... I mean, I just assume everything's about heroin <laughs> if I don't know what's about in, in yeah. grunge land, you know? But uh, this is one album I don't really dig into the lyrics too much. I They come into my head. I know all the words when it's playing, and then when it's not here, I don't remember much I, I'm with you it. on that. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a weird thing for me. To, this, it's almost an ephemeralness yeah. to the album that way, but it still stays fresh. And I can't say that for uh, I don't know pop stuff. I'm you know MIA yeah. or something uh, like stuff I dance to or whatever. When when I think of uh, Screaming Trees and lyrics that stay with me, I, I'm, I'm really thinking about Dust. Like I said, that I, I believe that that's a requiem for the whole scene, and I think that because of when that album was recorded and everything that had happened, that they actually had something to sing about, which was having stood there while their friends got famous, while their friends died, while their friends fell to drugs, while they watched this boom and bust cycle of their music scene. And I think that, you know, even the title Dust, which is, you know, very biblical, kind of puts that all out there as as opposed to, you know, at this point, when they're recording the album in 92, and you probably the songs were written sometime 91-ish, that you're, you're, you know, there's different things going on. They're caught up in at least some part of the machine of this whole grunge explosion. You know, the, um, by the time this record comes out, it's Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all these other bands that they know, and it's the single soundtrack that's got a lot of buzz from the previous summer. And you've got these guys just standing there trying to take it all in, kind of on the sidelines almost. So I don't know where their heads are with the songwriting, but I feel like with Dust, you know, they're looking back and they've watched that whole yeah. machine go. And that for me, not only is Dust kind of the Requiem, but it's so much more roots rocky that it's kind of pointing you know, where Lanigan's going to go. And it's definitely got more of a kind of stoner soundscape feel. So it's, it's also got where the brothers are headed. Yeah. Uh, and who's to say that it's not a, I mean, I said, you know, I wish they had made it a bit bigger yeah. because of this album, but that could have been the end of Lanigan That's too, true. right? Uh, he was struggling with substance abuse. We see what happened, how uh, Kurt handled his fame, you know, uh, it didn't stop him from doing heroin. It, you know, killed him pretty much. I mean, the shotgun killed him, but yeah. heroin, obviously, the dose would have killed him anyway. So Lanigan ended up straightening out and having a very prolific solo career, a very prolific, respected solo career that's been quite, kind of quiet. You know, he has got his fans, uh, doesn't sell millions of albums, mm-hmm. but maybe that's the best thing for his uh, temperament. Maybe if he uh, had to deal with all the fame, and stuff that came along with it, maybe he wouldn't have gotten straight, and maybe would have lost him too. That, that's true. That is true. I mean, it might be a blessing, and and it might also be that we're now in the era of vinyl reissues, and there's a certain amount of nostalgia for that that period of the early '90s. That this is something more and more people are going to rediscover. So I, I, let's uh, let's move on to um, kind of the, the the gap topic here, which is. Um, 
first of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about that twisty, Twisted Willie album, which I, I just looked up. And, and here's who's on that album. Johnny Cash doing Time of the Preacher with bass by Chris Novoselic, drums by Sean Kenny of Allison Chains, electric guitar by Kim Thale of Soundgarden. So, I mean, these guys all showed up. Uh, L7 with Waylon Jennings doing Three Days. Super Suckers doing uh, Bloody Mary Morning. Super Suckers. Wow. Haven't heard Mark that Mark Lanigan doing She's Not For You with uh, Mike Johnson, who I believe was in not folk, maybe Folk Implosion or Sebado. He was in Sebado, I believe, and he worked with uh, Lanigan on his solo records. Another band that really missed the boat somehow on all the fame that came with the yeah. scene. Is, I mean, if people love Nirvana, uh, check out Sebado. If you like, uh, but, uh, but you know, if you like Bleach, and uh, never mind. So then we get Presence of the United States of America doing Devil in a Sleeping Bag, which is one of my favorite tracks on that album because they reference oh, really? yeah, they reference Junior Brown. And I don't know if you know that Willie song. It's a really good song from his. I think it's from his Shotgun Willie album. I know Shotgun Willie. So yeah. Devil in a Sleeping Bag is a great, great song. And then Jerry Cantrell doing. I've, from Allison Chains doing I've Seen All the World I Care to See. Jello Biafra with Life After Life, another Waylon Jennings, Revan Horton Heat doing Hello Walls, X, and then Kelly Deal and Chris Christofferson. So, oh, Kelly Deal yeah, and Chris Christofferson. Flying Too Close to the Ground. Oh. So if you haven't checked out Twisted Willie, it's definitely worth, once again, pulling out of the uh, dollar bin or whatever if you see it. Yeah, well, I'll check Google Play and see if they have so, it. Am I fat? Do that yep. while you're So talking. the other thing that I, I, I had <laughs> proposed to you or asked you to listen to was a Johnny Cash song called You Wild Colorado. Did you get a chance to check that out? Yeah. Oh, you wild, raging river, like my woman's lips, you lure me, pipe piper of the desert, roll on to the sea. You're the same at noon or midnight And I'd follow where you go But you're planning no returning You wild Colorado If I had no love of life I'd become part of you What did okay. you think? I think it really, uh, again, the similarities between what Lanigan's going to become with his Americana, and uh, it really paints that path. You could tell he liked that song. Yeah, it, yeah, it really. I mean, you like Blues Funerals? That uh, yeah, Blues Funeral, 2012, and Whiskey and the Holy Ghost. You can hear that Johnny Cash influence on those solo albums by Lanigan. So, so this is a song that I found because Mark Lanigan was interviewed by I want to say Entertainment Weekly probably seven, eight, nine years ago now, and they asked him for, you know, ten songs that he was a big fan of. And this is one he mentioned. It was a Johnny Cash song that I did not know. It's from his early earlier work. It's from the Orange Blossom Special album, which was from 1964. It's two minutes long. It's just him and a guitar, and it's just incredibly mournful. It's very atypical Johnny yeah. of that period. Twisted Willie added to my library on nice. Google Play. It is on Google Play if anyone streams, so I imagine that means it's on Spotify and the rest. Definitely worth checking out. Go okay. on. Sorry. So Lanigan, and once again, this is also a river metaphor because they're talking about the Colorado River. This is looking at mortality and looking at existence and all of those those big questions that 
Lanigan seems to be asking at this point in time, especially with his solo work. And then I could almost I, – I, I'm surprised he hasn't covered this yet, to be honest. Or are we I, sure he has Actually, I don't know. Yeah, he's got like 10 albums, solo albums, so he might have. And that's not including the stuff he's done with uh, Isabel yeah. Campbell and uh, Isabel? Isabel. Isabel, I, I don't know if I'm saying yeah. Isabel. It's spelled kind of weird. Scottish, I believe, but, uh, so – yeah, yeah. So from Bella and Sebastian, it should be said. Uh, and check those albums out he's done with their their voices. They're very much doing that Lee Hazelwood, well. Nancy Sinatra thing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not as well, weird. Not much as weird <laughs> as, as Lee and Nancy. Oh, man. Uh, Some Velvet yep. Morning. That song is the most twisted song. I, it's the soundtrack to a serial. I can't believe it came out when it did. It's That song's crazy. But anyways, I mean, I can do a whole digression here on Lee Hazelwood. I mean, he's an amazing songwriter. Oh, man, yeah. Oh, yeah. But Some Velvet Morning, yeah. that's the name of the song, right? Yeah, that song is, is it's like uh, Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. It just, it seems like you're inside a killer's head to me anyways. It seems like you're in Ted Bundy's well, it's, head. It's been, uh, it's been covered multiple times by multiple people. I had never heard it till maybe okay. last year. And uh, I've listened to it all the time. On those time changes, yep. the other song that they did together that I absolutely love is called "Sand." I will Sand. It's that really up. good. That. And I'm just gonna put in a plug for my favorite uh, Lee Hazelwood album, which is "Cowboy in Sweden" from I think '73. Oh God, I need I need to pull it out and listen to it. Just so good. Just just amazing stuff. Cowboy in Sweden. Oh, look at that! Add it to my library. <laughs> this is what it's all about. Yeah. I do love streaming. So speaking of uh mingling voices, we're gonna move on to talking and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go ahead and uh lead on this one. Mad season above. Wake up young man, it's time to wake up. Yeah, so um, above Mad Season was kind of formed in a response to Lane Staley's heroin usage and the direction he was going in the Kurt Cobain direction. So Mike McCready of Pearl Jam was in rehab, I believe, where he ran into I got I don't know the names off by heart. I know Mike McCready's name, but uh, John Sanders. He ran into the yeah the drummer. The base. Oh no, no! In rehab, didn't he meet up with? Oh, Barrett yep, Martin. From Screaming Trees. No. Yeah. Oh, did he meet the bassist? Yeah. According rehab? to what I'm looking here oh, on Wikipedia, okay. he met the bassist in rehab, and then they started playing with Barrett Martin from the Screaming Trees. There you go. And they uh, recruited Lane to sing for them because they wanted him to stay off the heroin, basically, and so they played some live dates and recorded this album. Had a couple of singles off of it, Wake Up and River of Deceit. River of Deceit yeah. was pretty huge. 
I remember a lot of people thinking it was uh, Alice in Chains song when it came out because obviously Lane's got a unique voice. And but uh, Artificial Red might have done some business too. But overall, I think this was another kind of under-the-radar record for a lot of people. A lot of people knew of it because The River to Sea was a ubiquitous song yes. in 95. But I don't know how many people actually picked up this album. Of just general music. You don't hear them talked about a lot. But uh, I love this album, and I love the bass on this album. It's very spacey. It makes up for all the lack of bass mm-hmm. on Sweet Oblivion. So much blood, I'm starting to drown. Uh, wake up the lead track comes in with a nice stony bass line some feedback really love it see. when did you so I actually this? got this album when it came out with the whole Seattle thing I was kind of funny we're recording this tonight this is June 11th 2016 25 years ago tonight I graduated high school then I was going to get out of this town gone never coming back I went off to Lake Superior State University <laughs> that August of 91, and when I went to school there, I remember over the summer, and I know the story I've told a billion times, that I went for orientation, and the guys across the hall spent the whole night blasting Warrant over and over and over. Uncle Tom's Cabin was the song that was the big hit then. So it was complete hair metal. People were buying Asia tapes, including myself. People were listening to Rat, and I was a major, major Queensryche fan. Oh, well, that's the best of them, if you could consider them. Well, they were really kind of in that mix. They, they were a proggy. They, they, yeah, yeah. They definitely got lumped in with that group, but they were much And they were definitely proggy. much more intelligent and thoughtful, which I, yes. I cringe to say considering what they've become in the last several years. But they put out several classic albums between 85 and 95, if not a couple after that. At any rate, I was also listening to probably King's Axe and Driving and Crying at the same time, which I consider to be – the three kind of mainstream bands, because they all had mainstream hits, you know, 1990, 91, that kind of paved the way for an acceptability of grunge because they were more intelligent. They were doing uh, different – they were mixing different genres. They were they were doing things that the Rat, the Poisons, and the Motley Crews weren't doing. So I go away to the school, and everyone's listening to Guns N' Roses and Metallica and rap music. And I come home, and all anybody can talk about is Nirvana which I had yet to hear, even though we were watching MTV in the, in the lounge in the basement like three nights a week or whatever. 
and everything's Pearl Jam and Soundgarden we knew about and Alice in Chains we knew about a little bit. I was kind of plugged into the whole thing. I was buying Rip Magazine, which at the time was actually doing a really interesting job of covering the scene because they had picked up on it really early. They covered Mother Love Bone. They covered early Screaming Trees. They covered a lot of stuff. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that Rip Magazine did that I would love to be able to see again. I, I think they, they really should put out a book of the best of or whatever. But anyways, spent a year and a half at Lake Superior State. That didn't wasn't working for me, so I transferred to Michigan State University, where I was with my high school friends, who we were all completely plugged into MTV and the radio and you know, reading Rip magazine. So we knew about Mad Season coming out. And I had also bought the uh the previous side projects for the Pearl Jam Soundgarden uh gang. So I have I have Brad. the Brad album, which is a great pop album. I actually have the Hater album, which I just saw today is getting a vinyl reissue. That's a great kind of garagey uh, side project featuring members of uh, Soundgarden and Monster Magnet. It's, it's a lot more garage rock. It's definitely worth Well, yeah, Monster out. Magnet, you would imagine. So, I, I mean, when Mad Season came along, we were like, yep, going to go buy that. I'm sure I picked it up at the Warehouse Records in East Lansing. And, uh, we, you know, my, my friends and I spent some time listening to it. River of Deceit was the, the, the definitely the, the single that we all knew and st- stood out. But I was a big fan of the opening track. Oh, Wake Up's amazing. It's called Arms. It is. It's also for an album that was produced to keep one of your members off of drugs. It's a very druggy song, just with the, the, the vibe to it. I mean, you always think of Lanigan writing Well Stoned mm-hmm. or About being stoned and uh i don't think it's i mean it's a much different obviously it's a slow tempo it doesn't sound like an allison chain song at all but uh it, re- it really gives bacon chill yeah. vibe well and it's it's definitely also a song that i could hear like a country or a folky or a alt country act covering i oh, think really? it's got that kind of a tempo and that kind of a feel i can see a portis head that, that would be it. interesting too Definitely, I could I could hear that kind of that that Middle Eastern ethnic vibe put into it with maybe a little bit of the sampler thing. Yeah, a few scratches yeah. in the background, lots of bass. I could definitely I could see that. I could also definitely, like I said, definitely hear somebody at a you know open mic night trying to to do that on their acoustic guitar. Somebody with a really good voice could do the, do an amazing job of it. So we should say about Lane Staley's yeah. voice. I. <laughs> I'm always amazed he can sing as well, like uh, be as tuneful as he is, because he's got a very nasally, you hear his heavier yeah. stuff, his more rocking stuff. You wouldn't think that voice would translate into a slower tempo, more tuneful singing style, but it works weirdly to me that I just think that he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to sing as well as he does but he does i mean out of the grunge singers he well i guess he's better than kurt but that's uh, not you know yeah you don't at least i don't think of him as eddie vedder or lanigan or Or cornell Cornell, yeah i mean his voice meshes beautifully with cornell's and he can sing 
some some artists are like that. I find they just you wouldn't think. Now my uh, father-in-law is famous. When Dirt came out, my wife was listening to Dirt. He said, "This sounds like zombies singing." And I totally, I've always stuck in my head when my wife told me that because I could totally see as an outsider with, you know, the layered voices and just Lane's nasally intonement thinking that sounded like zombies. And I always, it it always stuck with me. He was a zombie. He was zonked out on whatever, heroin or whatever variant. Yeah, I guess that's true. And, you know, uh, yeah. I will say this about Dirt, that Dirt was a record that I bought when it came out. And I was like, okay, I like a couple songs on here. But if nothing else, the song Rooster might be the most important or one of the like, top five most important songs of the grunge era. And my most hated song really? of the grunge era. Well, only because of the ubiquity of it being played okay. on the radio. And I spent a summer... That that came out, I spent in a little resort town, working at a subway, like a little beach uh-huh. town. And we rented a cottage, and I worked at a subway. And every night, we'd hang out with people, friends we made. And they were all into rap and stuff. But they played my dirt. They just played Rooster on repeat every day. So I just, I, it, it got hammered out of me. I, I just can't take that song anymore. I skip it when Dirt's on. I don't even have any nostalgia for it. I can, the first time I heard it, I thought it was amazing. Yeah. You know, oh, he's singing about his dad in Vietnam. Oh, this is a brilliant song. It's so evocative. But I just heard it more than maybe any other song in my life at that point, and it ruined I it can, for I me. See that. I totally understand why everyone loves it, though. Yeah, just once again, growing up where I did, where everything was about fucking Vietnam. I mean, it was just, every, it was like the Big Lebowski. What the fuck has everything got to do with fucking Vietnam? I mean, <laughs> I, it, was, it was insane, the amount of shit I had to hear about Vietnam growing up. And having somebody of my generation try to address the whole issue with their parents and how their parents dealt with it or didn't deal with it, that, that really resonated. So to me, that's why I think it's one of the most important. And it was at a time when Generation X had really not been able to effectively talk about Vietnam and how it affected their families. Unless you're talking about ex-vets going back to rescue well, yeah, their I buddies mean, in movies. That's, I mean, that's Chuck Norris <laughs> and you know Rambo, and if you want to get really classy about it, that's... Uh, that's oh, I'm Common Valor. That came up before any of yeah, them. Yeah, and that was the best one. That movie's great. And it's Red Brown's best performance. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. And, it's, and Fred Ward's amazing <laughs> in that film. And Oh, and uh, freaking uh, C.J. Cobb, is that his name? Whatever. Yeah, he's amazing in that movie. Well, amazing. He beats the crap out yeah, of Patrick I mean, Swayze. everyone in that movie brought their A game when they didn't necessarily have to. How does Patrick Swayze look younger in that movie than he does in The Outsiders? I don't know. That movie's great. No, people don't talk about that. That's a lost classic. That was a movie that. that my friends and I loved in elementary school. That was the first beta tape that my mom ever bought that we actually had a movie at home. And it it still holds oh, up. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. It holds up great. I just watched it recently. I want to know if the park is mine holds I up. You ever not, see that? but I'm Tommy aware of it. So. It's a, it was a yeah. TV movie, I guess, but I remember watching it as a kid. He plays a Vietnam vet that takes over Central Park. <laughs> Talk about digressions. Well, you <laughs> know, the thing is that Vietnam does play a lot into the whole grunge thing because these are the children of the vets. 
I mean, if, if you see that yeah. documentary about uh, Andrew Wood, his father was in the Air Force, and there's definitely uh, issues that come up and damage at home that comes up because of what the father dealt with during the Vietnam era and being in the military post-Vietnam. So, I mean, this and heroin, I mean, that's the major proliferation of heroin into the American culture is through the Vietnam pi- pipeline and then post-Vietnam. I mean, this is the fallout from Vietnam. So much of it is. I mean, think about the, the wearing the ripped, you know, surplus army fatigues and, you know, all of that stuff Long kids have grown up with. Totally. I, I should say I never played this album nearly as much as Sweet Oblivion. I remember picking it up, you know, I used probably 95, 96 on the CD and playing the crap out of Wake Up, River of Deceit, uh, maybe Artificial Red. But for some reason, it didn't get all the playthroughs that Sweet Oblivion did. I think this it's a different album. Yes. It's deliberately paced. It's more inflective, more inner looking. Yeah. But I've come onto it in a big way in the last few years. Like As I kind of made a point a few years ago, about the time I started to feed my ears, to stop listening to a bunch of singles and mixes and playlists and start listening to full albums again, which I don't do 100% of the time. Some days are just eight hours yeah. of shuffle. But a lot of my listening now is full albums, and this one's benefited from that, I, I think. I also do think that this record is... You know, some some guys have been through the fame mill and are dealing with issues that require a little more maturity. And, you know, definitely my understanding of at least part of the rehab process is looking back to figure out where the problem started and how you're going to deal with them. And that I think that there is definitely a reflection of a lot of that in this album. I would not be surprised if this is one of those albums that the people in the addiction recovery community have latched onto. Oh, yeah. Um, lyrically, this is another one. I take it song by song. What do you think a lot of these lyrics? They, like, do they follow a theme? Do you think it's all about recovery? All about heroin, like uh, Dirt and most of Alice in Chains' Ouvoir was? Or do you think there's different subjects going on. I think here. there's a lot of lot of recovery stuff. I mean the whole wake up is about acknowledging there's a problem. Just the yeah. titles, like X ray mind is about, you know, kind of looking in and seeing what's going on in your brain. River of deceit, I mean that's obviously about heroin because heroin is deceitful. Yeah, and the the just it was a yeah. huge I mean it charted I don't know if it went to number one, but it was everywhere in ninety five. It was almost one of those grunges you know, it was changing at this point. It was becoming more polished, more, you know, uh, yes. more poppy, more radio-friendly. And this is almost like a last gasp of of the old scene kind of getting together and stripping it down. And, so there was a video uh, for it. There was a video heart. for it. it. On the U.S. alt charts, it went to number nine. And on the mainstream charts, it went to number two. There you go. It was everywhere. I, I mean, I... I still hear it the rare times I listen to the radio around here, but that's nothing. These uh, radio stations around well, here that you would listen to for alternative are really stuck in the 90s. Literally, every time I turn on the radio, I hear uh, wow. Our Lady Peace. Starcy? Yeah, but that, no. Well, maybe, but that'd be a great one to listen to. But no, usually okay. mid-era Our Lady Peace. But they're a Canadian yeah. band, so we have to play certain. But I mean, 
just local radio stations. They must be invested in Rain's career. It's terrible. It's a joke, running joke with me and the wife. I'm like, I turned it on for a second, and Our Lady <laughs> Peace is playing. Uh, you know, at least here, this is this is uh, comes out in '95 and '96 is the Telecom Act, which causes consolidation and suckitude in American radio. So, oh yeah, what, clear. What, what's the they, name? They, of they're the called iHeart Media. They can go fuck themselves because they're always going to be Clear Channel, which I refer to as Clean clear Channel. Clear Channel. To that's me. what I'm thinking of. They did a lot of underhanded yeah, shit yeah. that people don't know about, like like shutting down oh, little. Yeah. Little clubs and bookers that had been, you know, spent 15 years building their their scene, and suddenly a band that Clear Channel wants becomes popular, so they start calling the cops and shit. We have um, uh, the Chorus Network here in Canada, and it's you know the small time Canadian equivalent of the of that. It's terrible. I can't. I mean, I haven't listened to radio in years, but uh, again, whenever I turn yeah, it on, yeah, I mean, I, I try shit. to listen to the news only, but. That's not good these days. So yeah, exactly. CBC over here—that's our, you know, can, can, Canadian broadcast channel—and that's what I listen. I to should say that radio. our dominant alternative uh, rock radio here in the Southeast Michigan area was actually out of Canada, 89X, which was what covered the Detroit area. That—that's out of Canada, so we would hear, you know, a good amount of Alanis Morissette or the Tea Party or whatever. Well, Lance Morissette was huge. Yeah, she was. She was too, but right? I mean, that, not so much. Tea Party's made a weird revival yeah, in the last few years in California ways. I just see this from the group, from these California people posted about how they just discovered Tea Party and how great they are. And I'm like, well, let's keep listening. They're not that great. The other band was The, <laughs> the Pursuit of Happiness with the cigarette dangles. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Toronto, famous Toronto, Mo Tucker. No, Mo Tucker. Mo Berg is, uh, yeah, he's a quite famous Torontonian from back in the day. Cigarette Dangle, God. That was yep. later era Pursuit of Happiness, too. I'm an adult now. It was their big, big I do song. not know, you know that, that one. one. That one must not got much play. Look it up. Yeah, that was like, like from about two albums before Cigarette Dangle, and it was like, it's listen. Okay. Search it out. It's you'll enjoy it. I'm sure. It's just about being an adult, and not liking loud music anymore. <laughs> and it's pretty funny. And having to go to a job and pay a mortgage. Nice. It's pretty funny. Okay, so we go to I'm Above, which is also very much a recovery kind of a an idea that you know I, I need to be above, and I am I am worth something, which is is part of the whole recovery of you know you are worth something, so you need to be above this addiction, and you need to. You know, it, it's you need to be a higher being or spirituality. Rehabs, uh, 
uh, Barrett Martin, Mike McCready, and Mark Lanigan are all credited as writing the music for this track, and all three of them obviously had just gone through rehab. So, so yeah, really. Artificial so Red. I don't really understand what that, how that one would tie into a, a recovery narrative. I think it. I always took it as kind of an uh, artificial red being an analog to. Uh, like China okay. White or something, you know, like a, it's a, a drug and the temptations of not going to that drug and running to it. But again, I never, it's another one. I never really dialed too deeply into the lyrics, but that's what I've always taken it as. So the next one that stands out to me is I don't know anything, which as a song actually yeah. has a really great hook to it. It's got a, a chorus that, that you can latch on to. It's also the most Alice and yeah, Janey song definitely. I would say on the album. Definitely really does that repeating lane zombie voice course. You know, I haven't I haven't looked at my Allison Chains discs or discography in a while. Is is this pretty much you think the end of his input into the band? Oh, well, they had uh their self-titled yeah. came out after this. Jerry Cantrell has a lot more yeah. singing on that album. Lane's does a lot of, you know, he does still probably the lion's share of the vocals, but he's got a lot of singing harmonies uh, Jerry Cantrell, and I think Cantrell wrote mm-hmm. a lot more of it. And then uh, I think their Unplugged album was a lot, yeah. just like Nirvana. He died a few weeks after that Unplugged album, but he, obviously there was no new creativity. I mean, I don't think there was any covers on their Unplugged album, was there? Hmm. Let me, it's been let me a while since I've listened to it. So Unplugged comes out in 96. No, no covers. It's all, it's, it's all Alice yeah. in Chains stuff. And at that point, I think it's even on the album where he says, this is the best show we've had in two years. And they're like, it's the only <laughs> show we've had in two years. So he hasn't even been yeah. touring and since then, 94, besides with Mad Season, right? Cause they yeah, I guess they, they, they did a, a limited amount of shows. So Daly dies in 99, and I believe that they had recorded the majority of a second Mad Season album. I've always heard this. I've never heard it. I know it's some that vinyl. Apparently, he but, never got around to doing his vocals. But Lanigan yeah. does some of And Lanigan right? was on the first record. Yeah, he's on to the next song, too, Long Gone yeah. Day. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's kind of hard when, you, when you're, you're looking back and you're kind of picking through the remnants of this scene and, and what happened. I mean, there's, you know, as we discussed with Screaming Trees, there's the big four bands, and then there's kind of a second tier of bands that not necessarily quality-wise, but as far as popularity went. And then you have you have a whole world of third tier bands and then side projects and this falls into the side project space there for sure. I don't know. I mean, would you would you think you really want to hear more from this or do you want this to be their their one big statement? Uh, well, I'd 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 want to hear another okay. album Lanigan well, singing, which I I was under the impression there is a record out there with him singing a lot of tracks. I think it was a limited press. I could be wrong there. I just seemed to always heard there was another album that I could never find with Lanigan doing the vocals. I would like to hear that, especially this era. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe I'm just making stuff up. But I swear I've I've seen that posted before in the okay. in feed my ears this was a golden time for a side i mean outside of the grunge you had that whole uh like l jorgensen you know sideloaded yeah. to the grunge you know you had that uh, ministry stuff and which you know obviously goes more into the thrash industrial area but 
those people, speaking of Jerry mm-hmm. O'Connolly, I think the guy, uh, he was, if I'm thinking of the right guy, he was a member of Revolting Cox and with Al Jorgensen, and, which was the side project. And there was tons yes. of side projects in the whole alternative scene at the time outside of the grunge movement. You had, uh, you know, Jello Biafra and Al Jorgensen yep. doing Lard, which I, I have a funny, do you want a digression on Lard? I got one. I had heard there was an album out, a new album. I was, you know, big Psalm 69 to come over, come out. I was a big fan of a mind is a terrible thing to taste in early ministry. And I heard he had a new side project out called Lard. Of course, I didn't think of it as Lard. Mm-hmm. I knew it started with an L. So I went into the record store and picked up Lush's <laughs> debut. I thought it was Lard. I thought Lush was the name. Lush, you know, I, that sounds like a good name for an Al Jorgensen project. You know, a notorious yes. substance abuser that he is. So I came home with <laughs> with Lush and, and developed a love affair with Lush. I, but it took a while. I was shocked. I'm like, okay, uh, this trippy drone, you know, this is light from a dying star era. This isn't okay. the Britpop era of Lush. This is, I don't even know what you would call it, but their early stuff's a lot different than their later stuff. But it kind of, and this was before I was right into the, they almost led the way for a lot of my musical taste, that mm-hmm. accidental pickup for years to come. So that's just a little digression. But yeah, uh, this the 90s, the mid-90s to early 2000s was just a golden age for yeah. side projects in the in the. Did you ever hear the Jeff Almond side project, Three Fish? That was one yep. I had. I think, that been, I think I heard that before Brad. I think that might have been the first one I heard. Yeah, that's that's another one that I don't I no longer own that I definitely had at the time. Yeah, what else was there? There was um I guess one of the last things, the last uh, original, not original, but the last thing Lane ever did was that cover of uh, another yep. brick in the wall on the the faculty soundtrack and that was a side pro I don't know who else was in there. That was a side project too, that band. It wasn't Allison Chains and it wasn't Lane solo. It was yeah, let me let me bring it up here. Yeah, I was just looking up too. I know they never did anything else, I don't think. I mean there was a thousand homo DJs. That yeah, was, that was, that was one off I think they just So they call it Yeah, Al Al Simpson a billion the class things. of ninety nine and it, and it was That's right. Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, Stephen Perkins That's of right. Jane's Addiction, somebody else from Porn for Pyros, and Staley doing the vocals. Yeah. It's not oh, a, bad not a bad cover. I mean, I'm a huge Floyd fan. It's a bit of an <laughs> obvious pick. But they really, uh, I guess that would be Morello, really, really brings up the groove in that song that maybe is not apparent in the original wall. Yeah, and it should be said this was uh, also a golden age for soundtracks. Although I haven't, I've have not heard the Creed cover of "I'm 18," and I don't know that I want to. Oh man, I don't think people should cover Cooper. Not because Cooper's some uh, sacred goat. I just think Cooper's songwriting skills. Mm-hmm. I love Alice Cooper, love him, but I don't think he's the best songwriter. His lyrics are usually, generally, actually pretty terrible, with some great yeah. bits. They're usually in the same song. He can't write a full song usually. That's why my favorite Alice Cooper album is written by um, Bernie so, Toplin. <laughs> uh, Soul Asylum does Schools Out. And my favorite cover of Schools Out is 45 Grave. And there's a band called Cretan 66 yeah. that does an amazing Generation Landslide cover. But other than that, I can't think of any any really solid Cooper covers. I don't 
I don't know if, if Alice wrote all the lyrics to yeah, the band yeah. Alice Cooper's songs, but they are much better. I mean, School's Out yeah. is not, I mean, you can't even think of a rhyme. It's not a very, it's an example of, of later Cooper writing, but but uh, I believe, you know, the first few albums and Billion Dollar Babies and that are did great you, lyrics. Did you ever hear his grunge era album, Lost in America, with Chris Cornell on it? No, I don't think I have. A, I think Hey Stupid, once Hey Stupid came yeah, out, that was, I just... Yeah, that was like a hair metal thing. No, um, Lost in America is an interesting album. He was trying to do a concept record that dealt with the kinds of things that the, the grunge the grunge movement was talking about. Lost kids, broken families, that kind of stuff. I actually heard an interview with him within the last two years where he was... They asked him about songs of his that he thought should have been hits that weren't, and the one he picked is is actually from Lost in America. I think it's actually the title track. When you're talking about Cooper albums from from that you know post Alice Cooper band, it's one that's definitely worth checking out. It's not for everyone, but and, there, and there's uh, some Chris Cornell backing vocals on one of the tracks that's definitely worth hearing because good old Chris always available. Well, for that those was when he could wail. I don't I don't know what happened to him. I mean, yeah. you, you listen to his solo stuff on the single Age. soundtrack, and you're wow, and you're like wow, that's amazing. And then you listen to the solo albums he put out, and you're like, oh, this is off. Oh, have you heard that? No, I'm not even going near it. Nope. <laughs> Speaking of Alice Cooper and recovery yes. albums and Bernie Toplin, uh, have you heard from the inside? I do not you know, know that, that album? one. That is my favorite Cooper album, and it's written by Bernie Toplin. And it was uh, there was a comic book that came out with mm-hmm. it by Marvel Comics. It's a concept album about when Alice was institutionalized for okay. his alcoholism when he went into recovery, and it's a concept album that just takes all the inmates, mm-hmm. you know, and tells their stories. But it's written by Bernie Toplin, who, if people don't know, I imagine people listening to this know who he is, but he's he was Elton John, the golden age of Elton John's. He was his lyricist. And so if you can imagine a disco-era Alice Cooper album written by with a pop sheen of Bernie Toplin, but using Alice Cooper topics with those Elton John hooks and a bit of uh, just a touch of disco in it, there's lots of people who don't agree. Tim? I think agrees with me that it's his best album. I love it. I mean, I like it better than Welcome to My Nightmare or Billion Dollar Babies. I just, but I'm also a sucker for a thematically yeah. sound concept album. No matter how simple it is, like Queen's lost me on Operation Mindcrime because I couldn't, I could follow the story, but I okay. didn't find it stuck very well with me. But you know, the wall and from the inside. I mean, have you ever, I love have you ever that. heard Brave by Marillion? Definitely need no. to check that out. Okay. I shouldn't say I don't want to diss Operation Minecraft. Uh, I think yeah, it's a great album. It's just up there. It's no, just it's not up there for me. I with mean, it's a great record, but it's kind of it's think, some great songs on it. It's a fine line between not mm-hmm. overdoing it, but keeping it simple. Like The Wall, you know, it's really basic. All, you know, Roger Waters stuff is, you know, not really that deep, but he keeps it tight enough. I think the rockness of, of the Floyd albums as opposed to Roger Waters more, you know, taking the theme too far. I, I I like it when they just hit that sweet middle spot. I mean, The Wall is a great rock album and it's simple. I love it. But, progressions. Okay. We we should uh, start wrapping this up then. All right, Any man. final thoughts on Mad Season? Nope. Great album. A bit droney in a good way, I find. It's a good one to listen front to back and just kind of absor- absorb it. Just kind of lose yourself in it. Barrett Martin's drumming is nowhere near the same as it is on uh, Sweet yeah. Oblivion. Well, it's a couple of years later, and it's much yeah. more subtle. It's much more typical. 
like I said, that in Sweet Oblivion, I really find that drumming very uh, almost unique in the grunge world. It's really light. Uh, Barrett Martin's got a kind of unique drumming style. He doesn't rely on a lot of hi-hats and stuff like that. Uh, it's interesting. He's an interesting drummer. But I find he's much more typical okay. on this album. Not in a bad way. Just he doesn't stand out like he does on Sweet Oblivion. Uh, yeah, that's about it for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say about this. I, I think it's a good record. I think it's an interesting record. I think that if people are looking for stuff they haven't heard from this era, that it's definitely worth checking out. For sure. All right. Cool, cool. So next month, Morris has somebody else lined up to uh, to come on and host uh, Love That Album. I will be back next month with a Album I Love segment. And after that, I would say check the Facebook pages to see what Morris has got planned. Uh, he plans to be back in uh, August. And we will uh, see you then. So thank you, thank you, John, for helping out with this episode. Oh, oh no problem. Always good to talk My music pleasure. with you. Yeah, no thanks problem. for inviting me. So until next time. Check out some good music, check out some different music, and uh, be good to each other. Please clean your plate, dear, the door the book can see ya. Don't you know people are starving in Korea? Alcohol and razor blades and poisons and needles. Kindergarten people, they use them, they need them. The overindulgent machines with their children. And there wasn't a way down on Earth here to cool them. Cause they look just like a human at Kresge's and Woolworth's. But decadent brains were at work to destroy. Rats in battalions were ruling the street scene. Generation landslide closed the gap between them. I laughed to myself at the men and the ladies who never conceived of a billion dollar baby. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.